Welcome to Ojibwe Stories Gaganudanada. I'm your host, Eric Reddix. Last week, our good friend and frequent contributor, Larry and Nick Smallwood, passed away. Our condolences and thoughts go to his family. A few weeks back, we were fortunate enough to sit down with a Mick and record what turned out to be his final session for our program. Among other topics, a Mick discussed this year's odd maple sugaring season and his years in Los Angeles during the relocation program. Whistling, whistling at night, like what are our teachings? Because I think in our communities we hear like, oh, don't whistle at night, like we're just not supposed to, and is there any particular reason? Or A lot of times when we were young we were told not to whistle at night. Uh, different reasons... I know, and we were told that, you know, they always told us, you know, somebody's going to whistle back at you. You know, spirits will come out and whistle back at you, so don't be whistling at night. Mm-hmm. So we didn't, and we grew up with that in our heads, and we teach our kids that now, and anybody else we see that's native, you know, say, mm-hmm. hey, don't whistle at night if we see him whistling or hear him whistling. And, uh, a lot of times they'll ask why, and then sometimes they'll say, oh, yeah, I, f- I forgot. I don't know a lot of, like... Natives that whistle anyway. Yeah, I think as a habit, we just don't. I mean, it's just in us, you know. Then on the other hand, there are some that do. I had an uncle, that's all he did all day was whistle Indian songs. He uh, worked in a big church in Minneapolis, Central Lutheran Church. Hmm. And we would go there, stop in to visit him sometime and have coffee with him. And we would say, listen, hold up, be real quiet. And pretty soon we'd hear him whistling somewhere so we knew where he was. Huh. <laughs> See, always whistling Indian songs. But not at night. So I don't know what other tribes have taught their young ones about that, but we were told, you know, somebody's going to whistle back at you, whistling around where the spirits are. Because spirits come out at night. So can you play the flute at night, or is that something you probably shouldn't do either? That, I don't think... uh, Doesn't matter as much. No, it's it's you personally that's whistling. (laughs) You're whistling for somebody, so... I wouldn't worry about the flute or anything. Okay. Merzaku... Ngikinamagoman Pyombigiang. <laughs> Mrs. Aga, getting can I ask you this thing about rocks? Are we not supposed to throw rocks in the lake in the summertime? Like little kids throwing rocks? I never heard anything about rocks. Though. As far as we draw on here, we do. Skipping rocks. Even in one of the legends, that has somebody, when it was a hurt, thought he heard somebody throwing a rock on the ice, and they go, doom, 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 doom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I never heard anything about not doing it. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was when you first move into a house, they say you're supposed to smudge the house. 
I never heard them say you're supposed to smudge the house, but you know a lot of people do that for different reasons. Uh, you kind of want to cleanse the house because you don't know who was in there or what they had in there or what they may have left behind. So good smudging is good. We, we use cedar for smudging. Cedar is a little bit more uh, what Ojibwe's use. Later on, sage came around, so we, we use that too. But cedar is the number one with the southern Ojibwe's. We hang cedar in our houses. What's the reason for that? They used to hang cedar above their doorways, their entryways. Again, I don't know the reason why, but they say the spirits don't like to come around where cedar is going because you don't know what spirit might come in and out of your house. So spirits are afraid of that cedar, so they hung a little leaf of cedar above each entryway. So, and we still do that today. A lot of the Anishinaabe people around my neck of the woods, they, they do that. So we hang that up, and then like when it's looking a little rough, kind of hang a fresh one there? Yeah, you know, when it, when it started turning brown, you know, you just put it out someplace and then get some fresh cedar. Mm-hmm. You know. Just kind of put the old stuff in the woods yeah. or whatever. Yep. Yes, you know? yep. This thing that I've heard about, people talk about, like their parents, grandparents used to do, is like when there's a thunderstorm, like they would put out tobacco. Yeah, we used to, uh, when we were growing up, we were taught that as soon as it's cloudy, pretty soon you hear those big thunderclaps really loud, they would say, go out and put tobacco out for the thunderbirds. You know, they'll take pity on us. So we would go outside real quick and put some tobacco on us, and we'd say, say, mom, oh, stop it, and we go back in the house real quick. What is Wigub? Wigub has many, many uh, different uses. 
when they first started using Wego back in the day, and I don't know when back in the day was, I've seen them use it for stitching. I've seen it used for medicine, for many things, because it's very strong, for one thing. And also you can braid it to make it stronger yet. I've seen my grandma, Lucy Clark, make dolls out of Wego, and also baskets. So it has very many uses. This is Ojibwe Stories, Gaga Nunada, a program of Ojibwe culture. Our guest today is Larry Amick Smallwood, who passed away suddenly last week. Shortly before his passing, Amick sat down with us and recorded what turned out to be his final session for the program. Amick grew up in Ajimug, the Lake Lena district of Mille Lacs, and served as the director of language and culture for the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. He also taught Ojibwe language at many institutions, including UMD. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your experience with the uh, relocation program, the BIA. Yeah, the BIA Indian Relocation Program. Um, there, there weren't very many opportunities for us young natives back in the day. I know a lot of people, uh, when this relocation program came up, a lot of our native men and women, they signed up and they can go to any major city they wanted to go to, any, or there was a school that existed with what they wanted to be specializing in. Like a lot of our men back in the day loved auto body work, mechanics, um, different things like that. So it was a good program. <laughs> it was kind of the government's last attempt to get rid of us on a reservation, but it didn't work that way. I myself, when I got out of the military in 1970, I signed up for I went down to the BIA office, and they said, oh, yeah, we'll send you any city in the United States where there's a school of your choice. So, well, of course, you know, I'll take auto mechanics. Yeah, we'll find you. Where do you want to go? And I, and I picked the biggest city I could think of, and I said, I want to go to Los Angeles, California. Hmm. Okay, well, we'll do the paperwork. So they gave me rent money when I got out there. They gave me uh, food money and then living expenses to go to school. And I went to school out there in Downey, California, in 70 to 71 to almost 72. When I finished that, I came back up here to Minneapolis, and my uncle had a garage, so I was a little grease monkey there for a few years along with my brother and a few of my cousins and my uncle. It was good, but kind of backfired on the government because once we got through school, we all went back home again, you know, and we got jobs. So, And many people, when they went to big cities, when they uh, finished with their school, they, you know, the BIA helped them find jobs, and they found jobs out there. So a lot of the families stayed out there, and they had kids and raised their kids. I mean, they stayed out there 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. But you know what? They slowly came back. Mm-hmm. Slowly came back. I don't care where you put them in the Shinabe. You can put them out there. You can be living good out there. But slowly he starts coming back. <laughs> Always come back. Yeah, I don't care how warm the weather is. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a good program. It worked, but it backfired on the government. Mm-hmm. So. And in those years, how did you... Um did you like kind of talk to people, like other people from the area, to kind of keep the language going and things like that? Or Indians will find Indians wherever they go. They'll look for Indians. You know, they look for the hangouts of Indians. <laughs> you go to the nightclubs, and there's a lot of Indians gather there. So first thing, yeah, hey, where are you from? Where are you from? Where are you from? Pretty soon, you find somebody from your 
it doesn't even have to be your reservation. It could be your state. And so, oh, yeah, and then, you know, boy, you connect right away. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when I was living out there, going through relocation, there's a 7-Eleven store down the block, and there was this tall Mexican guy behind a counter talking to a light-complected native woman or Mexican I thought. And as I moved up to the counter, they were having a heated discussion, and he was saying... We could always go back up north. He said, I could always cut pulp up there. And I caught my ear, and I said, hey. I said, where are you going to go cut pulp at? He looked at me. He said, I'm in Cass Lake. Oh, I said, hey, I'm from Mille Lacs Lake. Oh, yeah, hey, I'm so-and-so. Oh, yeah, okay. We had a connection there. And then uh, the grapevine or the Moxon Telegraph will help you find your people out there. Mm-hmm. And when you gather up, you know, and then you start speaking your language to each other. And we did that. There was quite a few from Red Lake that I was out there in Los mm-hmm. Angeles with and from Mille Lacs. So we found each other. Hmm. And they have dance clubs out there and they have Indian centers out there. So yeah. naturally you go to the Indian center because the BIE, when you go to school out there, will give you all this information. There's oh. an Indian center over here, you know. Hmm. So you go and get curious and you find out what's going on. You know, hey, there's a power here this weekend. There's a power. Wow, you know, then. Everybody heads out there. Yeah, we find each other. We look for each other. <laughs> Harris, somebody looks like me over there. That's, uh, I'm going to go talk to him. So that Mexican guy that I was talking to wasn't Mexican at all. He was he was in Ojibwe from Cass Lake. California is in the United States government to get to bond of the dog, it can no more go on with it. Which of the guys I am? I'm some good on the Shanabi and Shad Butchago and the Wab Mad with the Shanabi and Pony. Miss Marbening, you pinned again, my dog, I'm going. You are my basic in the name. The bearing tobacco in the name of my Magasami go, ma. This is Ojibwe Stories, Gaga Nunada, a program of Ojibwe culture. Our guest today is Larry Amick Smallwood, who passed away suddenly last week. Shortly before his passing, Amick sat down with us and recorded what turned out to be his final session for the program. Amit grew up in Ajimug, the Lake Lena district of Mille Lacs, and served as the director of language and culture for the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe. He also taught Ojibwe language at many institutions, including UMD. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your military experience, being a young man, where you were stationed, things like that. Mm-hmm. I got drafted back in the day into the military in the 60s. I didn't get sent to Vietnam, right, because I was sent over to uh, Germany to be border patrol. So I went over there, and this was all new to me, fresh off the reservation, military life, and I loved it. 
We worked hard. I loved the military. And of course, there again, we Indians, we look for each other again. So I started looking for them, but I didn't really find any. So I hung around mostly with Mexicans and uh, learned to speak a little bit of their language. Of course, I forgot it now. But I hung around with Mexicans. Every once in a while, we would meet a native, or we would meet another Indian, another Shinabi someplace. And it's really a good feeling when you meet somebody. I um, was in a chow hall early one morning, about 6 o'clock, and I heard somebody in Ojibwe call me a derogatory name. So I froze in my chow line there, and I turned around, looked around to see who said that to me. And there was this native guy sitting there grinning, and he asked me in Ojibwe if I understood. I said, yes, I did. Oh, then we sat, and I sat down with him, we started talking. Found out he was from central Michigan someplace, so he... He was testing me to see if I was Ojibwe. <laughs> it surprised him when I, when I froze and looked at him and answered him, you know. But it was a good experience. You know, I'll I tell you something. I really believe in the military. I believe in a draft. You see all these young guys nowadays from 17 to 40 years old, they don't know a dang thing about life. They don't. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to relate to more to the hip-hop culture, and they don't know a dang thing about their own culture. And if you see them walk around, the way they're dressed, the way their home life is, you would be shocked. Because a military, a veteran, is taught self-respect. He's taught uh, personal hygiene. He's taught uh, discipline. He's taught respect. He's taught everything in that military. You go into a veteran's home, and I'll bet you 99% of it is spotless. And uh, you go into a, one that hasn't been in the military, you go to his home, and I'll bet you it's in disarray pretty much. And I dare to say that because I've seen some. Mm-hmm. Uh, I myself am that way. I'm, I'm really picky about my house. I, I don't like a messy house or dirty house, and I don't have one. So it teaches you a lot, the military. Also, uh, when I was in the military, I, I never forgot my traditions. I used to put my tobacco out while I was in the military. And when I went in the military, there was a ceremony done for us at one of the big drums here to ensure my safety and, and my return. And the ceremony was done for us. So I kept that in mind, too. And I was overseas for 19 months. I never took a leave or anything because I was afraid if I came back, I wouldn't go back into the military. I probably would have ran. <laughs> so I refused to take a 30-day leave. And uh, I stayed over there. So, but yeah, I believe in the military. Teaches you many things. Mission <laughs> Music 
Um, you're talking about young people today. You know, we live in a different time, and you know, you're talking about the military and relocation back when, you know, those were like the big options for young, you know, native people. Well, probably everywhere, but especially from around here. And, you know, today we don't have that, and we're kind of lucky to be around when there's more jobs in our communities mm-hmm. and things like that. But on the other hand, do you think it's good for young people to get out and, you know, even if they're going to come back, as you say, like we always kind of do, do you think it's good if they don't spend their entire, especially formative years, like just around the reservation? And I don't know, I just kind of see this where if there is somebody like kind of in their 30s and they never left, they never been off, they never been off the reservation, mm-hmm. it's kind of bad news. So it sounds to me like you're kind of saying that maybe it's a good thing if, uh, if people do kind of go out and just maybe in your experience get out and experience something different, even if it's just for a year or two. It, it is a good thing to get out the reservation and go, uh, go and visit uh, other, other cultures, mm-hmm. uh, go work in, a, in the other parts of the world or in, in the country, go get a job, experience that. The more you experience that, I think, the more you appreciate your home when you come back. Like I said earlier, you know, everybody comes back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter how if they've been gone 10 months or 15 years or 20 years, they'll eventually come back. They, they miss their home. And uh, what they've gained, the knowledge they've gained out there working out in the world will probably be a lot useful to him when he gets back to his home mm-hmm. turf. So I would encourage young people to get away from that. Right now, there's an epidemic on our reservations, you know, that drug epidemic. You know, these guys don't have the the uh, resources to get out and go someplace, mm-hmm. um, or the money to get out and move out to someplace and get a job or whatever. They're they're stuck right there. I mean, it's almost like we're kind of. I mean, we're again, we're fortunate to where things are a little bit better economically today, but yet. It also makes people kind of comfortable and complacent almost where they are because they don't have to, you know, go to the military. Or... Right, right. And, you know, uh, our tribe has a, has a per capita every month. And it's not that big, I don't think. Uh, but that's what these guys want to live on. If they get 900 a month or 1000 a month, man, that's, that's their monthly income. They're happy with that, you know. They could make that in a week if they went out and got some training nope. and got a job. Mm-hmm. Instead of a thousand a month, they'll make four thousand a month. So, I wish some of them would do that. Hmm. Well, the last thing I want to ask you about is, um, and we've talked about it on prior shows about the sugar bush. I think we devoted like a couple of years ago. We had a whole show on the sugar bush, but you know, here we are. It's the second week of February. 
And some people, like I mentioned to you, kind of on the way in, some people are on Facebook. They're saying, oh, the sap's running and they're setting up. And, you know, we know that we see spring-like weather and it's cold at night and that's when when the sap starts running. But what else should we look for? When else should we start setting up our sugar bushes? Because to my mind, we're we're still kind of early, even though the temperatures are kind of right. But it still seems early to me. So I wonder what, what your thoughts on that were. Maybe that guy that saw the sap running, maybe the trees were thawing out from the cold. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't think it's going to run yet. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, a, we have a good month to go, I think. Even if it was an early spring, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just had a warm-up is all we had here, and everybody's getting all excited. But, you know, the seasons are getting funny. Mm-hmm. And it's throwing the animals off, mm-hmm. of course. We predictions the old people had, you know, everything's going to go here, you know, just like now, everybody's always getting ready for summer here. And Um, and then I think we've talked about this before, but I I think it's good to, this might bear repeating if we haven't, but, uh, or if we have people that don't go through that, I guess I'm under the impression that everybody listens to the show goes through the archives. Maybe it's not that bad, but even if they do, I think it's something to good to kind of talk about again in that, we're supposed to, right? We're supposed to um, have kind of a, when we get our first, if you could talk about what they did when they uh, first got their first kind of run of sap and if they have a little feast when you're growing up and we're still, we're still supposed to do that. Yeah, of course. You know, our first sap, they, they'd cook something up and they'd, they'd, they'd uh, smoke the pipe, you know, and they'd, they'd eat that. You know, it's something to make a meal to go along with that and have a little feast there. Mm-hmm. So appreciation, thank the creator for, for that sap again that they're getting. And, uh, yeah, we do that with everything. We do that with rice, and a lot of times people get all their berries together and they'll have a little feast there. Mm-hmm. So we always give thanks for what Mother Nature gives us. Panigo, you can just get too hard to meet you, I'll be no idea. 
That's all the time we have for today. This is Ojibwe Stories Gaganunida. I'm your host, Eric Reddix. Our guest this week was Larry Amick Smallwood, who passed away last week. Amick grew up in Ajimu, the Lake Lena district of Malax, and served as the director of language and culture for the Malax Band of Ojibwe. He also taught Ojibwe language at many institutions, including UMD. Over the years, Amick was extremely generous to the program in sharing his stories. His loss will be felt throughout Ojibwe country. To listen again to past episodes of Ojibwe Stories Gaganunida, visit the programs page at kumd.org and click on Ojibwe Stories. Funding for Ojibwe Stories Gaganunida is provided in part by the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council and by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Ojibwe Stories Gaganunida is produced by KUMD and the Tribal Sovereignty Institute at the University of Minnesota Duluth, home of the Master of Tribal Administration and Governance, or MTAG, program, where students learn about leadership, law, sovereignty, and management from a tribal perspective. MTAG was designed by tribes for tribes, currently accepting applications for fall enrollment. More information can be found at umdmtag.org. Our technical producer is Chris Harwood. Funding for Ojibwe Stories Gaganunida is provided in part by the UMD College of Education and Human Service Professions and by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.